thinking about the Son, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was conceived last week. We thought about how He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and He was born by the Virgin, and how in every line of the Apostles' Creed, it takes faith. It takes faith to declare it because you're declaring a miracle in every line of the Apostles' Creed. There is a miracle contained in every, every line that, that Jesus came to the earth, that He in he took on flesh, that's, that's the fancy name for taking on a body that he was conceived. It's, an, it's amazing. You know, if, if it happened today, it, it probably wouldn't be made in a film. It would just be too out there. But the truth is, as revealed through this creation, as it's revealed to each one of us, that God loves the world, that he sent his son for each one of us. He gave his son so that we might inherit eternal life. And that's what we're thinking about this morning, about how Jesus came to the earth. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. And he descended to the dead. That's what this line of the Apostles' Creed says. And as we, as we journey into this, we are thinking about what Jesus has done for us and why it makes a difference, and why it should change our lives. There's a joke, there's a story of a minister who had just moved into the area, and he was, he was just having a wander around the streets, and, and he saw these, this bunch of kids with a wee dog, and the wee dog obviously looked like a stray, and the kids were saying that they, they, one of them were going to take the dog home and look after it, but they had to win the dog. So they, they, and they were telling the minister this, they decided that they were going to tell the biggest lie so that whoever told the biggest, bestest lie, they would get the dog. So they, they were away to start, and the minister jumped in and went, how dare you do such a terrible thing? This poor dog, you've got to save him and look after him. But why would you do such a terrible thing as tell the biggest lie? When I was your age, I never, ever told a lie. And then there was a bit of silence, and all the kids looked at each other and went, fair enough, you win, here's the dog. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think sometimes, I think sometimes as Christians, we think we're somehow better. As Christians, we somehow think that because God loves us, and we attend church, and we, we do good things, that, that somehow we are better and, and good, and we've never done anything wrong. And we look down on other people, and we cast judgment on other folks. And the truth is, as Christians, as we recognize what Jesus has done for us, we realize that we truly need to be saved, and that everyone is in the same boat. That as Christians, we are we're only good because of what Jesus is doing in us. Left our own devices, we would go our own way too. 
One of the biggest questions when it comes to Christian faith, once we've dealt with creation and the Trinity and whether or not Jesus was truly God and whether or not dogs do go to heaven, clearly they do go to heaven. Cats, I'm not so sure about. But why would you even ask that question? If Jesus, if Jesus was God and all-powerful, the question is, why did he have to die? And what does it mean for us that he died for our sins? Because the problem is, we don't see ourselves as bad people, do we? We reckon we're, we're all pretty good. We have lived a good life. We've never killed anyone, hopefully. We've, we've never done, you know, we've never stealed big things. We've never gone through all the big bad stuff. We've always been faithful to our spouses. We help those who are in need. But this is, is, is almost the root of the problem, that we think that we're kind of better than we are. The root of the problem is found in Romans 3, verse 23, where it says that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You and I, if we were to meet in the street or if we were to be chatting, we'd give a pretty good account of ourselves. We portray a good image, don't we? We portray a pretty good image of, of, of nice Christian people. But if people could see inside your head, what would, what would they see? If they could read your thoughts, would you still be seen as a good, good person? You know, one of the questions our kids ask us, what superpower would you love to have? You know, and, and you have the discussion, you know, flight or super strength and, and, and all that stuff. I think the worst one you could have is telepathy, to be able to read someone else's mind. Because the minute you dive in there, you realize that they have the same thoughts as you, and they are struggling as well, just as you are. And yet, this is how God sees us. God sees us. The Bible says that He sees the heart. He knows what's going on inside, and yet He still truly loves us. We're rebels. That's the problem. We're all rebels going, wanting to go our own way, doing our own thing, and we behave like God is not in the room. Nicky Gumbel the, the pioneer of the Alpha Course, he, he speaks of this problem with, with four Ps of sin. He speaks about the pollution of sin, that sin is everywhere. It's invading everywhere in our structures, in our societies, everywhere we go, sin is present. But he also speaks about the power of sin, that how in each one of us, sin is attractive and how we desire it, and it's addictive. Whatever that might be, there are various things that will addict us, be it money, be it sex, be it power. The, the, the sin, the, the temptation of sin is a powerful, powerful thing that sticks with us. But also, the Bible teaches that there is a penalty for sin. That in just the way that we crave justice for the innocent who are killed. We expect the courts to bring justice for the murderers. We expect that, but also we expect justice from our God. And if there was no justice, if there was no justice from God, the creator of all, 
then we would be crying out. So there is a need for justice, and God is holy, and He is just, and He also declares that there will be justice for all sin. But also there is the partition of sin, that sin cuts us off. Because God is just, there is a gulf between us and Him, and it is sin that gets in the way. So you've got pollution of sin, you've got power of sin, you've got what was the penalty of sin, and you've got the partition of sin. That we are, if we're honest, we're not as good as we think we are, and we're cut off from the Father. But we need to appreciate anew what God has done for us. The central tenet of our faith is that Jesus died on the cross, that God Himself gave his life for our sin. And that meets, that meets the penalty of sin. That sets us free. To give you an example of that, I, I want, you may have heard this story before, but to remind you of a Catholic priest called Father Maximilian Colby. And Father Maximilian was in the concentration camp. He was in Auschwitz. And there was a prisoner who had escaped, but he had been caught. So he was dragged back. And because he was caught, the, 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 the guards, the, the powers that be in that concentration camp, declared that 10 prisoners would be put in a starvation bunker so that they would all pay the penalty for this one man's attempted escape, so to stop others doing it. And they went down the line, and they picked 10 randomly. And eventually, they picked a chap called Francis, I'm not going to say his name right, Gujanacek. And he fell on his knees, and he declared, I've got a wife and kids. Please don't take me. The commandant, he didn't listen. And then this wee Catholic priest, Maximilian, stepped forward and said, let me go in his place. Let me go in his place. I don't have kids. I don't have a wife. I'll give my life freely for him. And so they said, fine, in you go. And normally in these situations, in this starvation bunker thing, this horrific thing they'd created, the men would tear themselves apart. They would just yearn for death. But with the father, with this priest, Maximilian Colby, in that bunker, they sang hymns, they prayed, and they looked after each other. And eventually, they all passed away, apart from three, and one of them was Maximilian. And eventually, they needed to fill up the starvation bunker again, so they killed them. But on the 10th of October in 1982, as the Pope was declaring in St. Peter's Square, he declared that Colby gave his life as a victory won like the victory won by Jesus Christ. And Francis, Gajona Czech, and his whole family, his children's children, were in that square to hear it. It was a victory like Jesus had given a victory. And yet, Jesus' victory was even greater, for He did it for everyone across time. He was our substitute. 
and the cross was horrendous. I, I never really understand, and, and I, I do it as well sometimes. I wear a cross around my neck. But if we were confronted with what the cross was like day by day, would we truly wear a cross around our necks or in our ears or whatever it might be or tattooed on our bodies? You see it all the time, the cross. The cross was a horrendous thing. The stuff that Jesus endured was, was beyond inhuman. He was flogged with, with the cat and nine tails that had bits of china and, and bone that ripped the skin off. He was, he was torn apart. And, and Cicero, I think it was Cicero that speaks about, it was the most cruel and horrendous of tortures that his, his skin was flayed from his back. He was then nailed through his wrists. He was then hung on the cross. And he was hit and mocked before that and he slowly suffocated to death. He suffered. On that cross, he suffered. But perhaps the worst bit of his suffering was that as he took our sin, he endured the agony of Gethsemane, where he cried, take this cup from me, this cup of wrath that was being poured out that his father gave him. Yet not my will, he says, but your will be done. He suffered and he died. The greatest agony would have been that his father turned his face away as he took on the burden of sin. And then there's this interesting wee line in the Apostles' Creed that he descended to the dead. And we were discussing this in our, our men's Bible study yesterday morning, asking, wondering where this came from. And you find it in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, where it says that Jesus descended and implored the spirits that had not known him from before, from before the time of Noah. It's an interesting idea. It might answer the questions of what about those people? Are they saved before Jesus? The ones who lived before Jesus came, were they saved? It's an, it's an interesting little side note. But we know that he died. That's the kind of main thing, that the torture, the unbearable stuff he took resulted in his death, and he was buried in a rich man's grave. But what does all this mean? Well, if you look to the Bible, you see in the Old Testament the images of the temple and how the sacrifice that was given in the temple cleared the people's sin the pollution of sin. But the sacrifice was never enough. But surely if the Son of God gave his life freely, that would meet the pollution of sin. But also, there are various images throughout the New Testament. And the, the, Paul uses the idea of the marketplace where people are redeemed, where they're bought, where they're set free or as bought as, even not set free, but bought as slaves. And we are bought as slaves of Jesus rather than slaves of the world. And then there's the law court where someone else, someone else has met the price for our sin. And then there's the view of home. Perhaps the most powerful parable in the New Testament is the parable of the prodigal son. 
really the parable should be called the prodigal God, how he goes out to bring us home. And that breaks the gulf. It crosses the gulf. That Jesus, as he gave his life for us, means that the Father who's waiting for us, waiting for us to come home, as we turn to him, he comes running to us. Really, I just want to share with you this morning that God loves you, and he will not let you go. And he pursues us. He sent his son for us, our, our, our brother, our Lord, our Savior. He gave his life so that we can have life in all its fullness. But what, what does that actually mean for you and me today in the world that we live in? Well, if we look at Isaiah 53, our reading for this morning, written 700 years before Jesus came, you read these words. At verse 4, surely he took up our pain, he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And we, like stupid sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us have turned our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before its shearers is silent. And so he did not open his mouth. And as you look at the gospel narratives, this just all fits together. 700 years of difference and it all fits together. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. God's word speaks, speaks so clearly into the passion of Jesus. A man of suffering, crushed for our sin, buried in a rich man's grave, and by his wounds we are healed. We are healed inside and out. God speaks into our lives, and he works in us, and he begins a work in us, and he heals us. And if we're declaring, if we're declaring that we believe in the Apostles' Creed, and sometimes that takes faith, but as we declare that, we're saying that we believe in miracles, we believe in every line of the creed as a miracle. In fact, every day is a miracle. Every healing from the medical profession is a miracle. And sometimes we need to dig a bit deeper for a miracle of supernatural healing in our lives. By his wounds, we are healed. If we look to the cross, if we focus and what a wonderful, horrible thing the cross is. We discover healing. 
you know, in, in our everyday lives, in all the stuff that we're going through, if, if we can manage it in our own strength, if things work out for us the way that we expect by doing hard work and, and, and earning our way to it, who do we give the glory to? We pat ourselves on the back, don't we? We've done it. We've done it. We're great. But when we need to step out in faith, and I'm saying to us as followers of Jesus in Dalkeith in the 21st century, we need to step out in faith to trust him for the impossible, trust in him for what is going to happen next. And we believe in miracles. And when we witness these miracles, we give him the glory. That's why we worship. That's why we share together and worship, because we are assigning him the worthiness, all the glory, and we want to usher his presence in. And as we do it, others are drawn to him. There's a wee story of a wee boy who on a Sunday afternoon, his dad was reading the paper. His dad was just kicking back and his son was kicking off and he was driving his dad mad. I'm not sure if you've ever done that or if you've had kids who've ever done that, but that happens quite often. So what he decided to do, he was reading a paper and there was a map on the front of his paper. So he, he cut the map out and then he cut around the map and then he you know, put in little pieces, made a jigsaw, and he said, son, just, just put that together. Make, it, make a jigsaw of the, of the world, and that'll be wonderful. So he thought that'll, that'll give him at least an hour so he can enjoy the funnies and the Sunday papers. The kid came back after literally two minutes. Done, Dad, finished. He said, what? How did you finish that? And he said, well, I turned it over, and there was a picture of a man there. And he said, once I got the man, I got the world. When I got him together right, the world was right. And I think, in a very kind of shoehorned kind of way, I'm trying to do this. That's the truth. When we get the man together, when we get the man right, the world is right, even with all the stuff that's going on. By his wounds we're healed. And it only happens when we come to the cross. When we come to the cross in worship and thankfulness, when we see what he has done, it releases something in us. It releases heaven to earth, and the healing comes. There's a poster outside the church this morning, poster of the church, no, poster of the cross, and beneath it it says, once for all. The cross happened once for us all. The cross spans the universe, space and time, for all humanity, for you and for me. And as we wear it as a piece of jewelry or in our ears or tattooed on our bodies, we should never forget that our Father in heaven is waiting at the furthest field for each one of us and for the whole world as we're going our own merry way, wasting all that we've got. He's waiting for us to come home. And when we turn to him, he runs to us. We will live lives of loneliness and sorrow because we don't turn to Jesus. We don't turn to the cross. Then one day, 
it will be too late. We'll have waited too long. We'll be like the Rabbi Jairus in the New Testament who did not run to Jesus until his daughter was at the point of death. Take a moment to examine your life today. Take a moment to think about all the stuff that's going on in your life. Is there something that is the point of death for you? What part of your life is barely breathing, inside or out? Run to the cross, run to Jesus, and let him make you complete. I know without him, I am broken and I am lost. But when I find him, and I've found him, and I'm continuing to find him day in and day out, I find that I'm made whole. So in closing, I just want to share a story of a a man who was clearing out his father's house. He had passed away. He was clearing out his... Now, you may be one of these people. I'm not one of these people, but my wife is. A hoarder. I, I, I think we've mentioned that before. It's okay. It's out in the open. I clear stuff up. I chuck it in the bucket. My wife doesn't. But this, this man was clearing out his dad's attic. And in the attic was a box and on the, on the box, true story, it's, it's a true story. The, the chap's name, if you don't believe me, was Donald Hall. He was once the poet laureate of New Hampshire in the U.S. But on, on the box, it said, string too short to be saved. And inside the box were all these little bits of string that were too short to be saved. I wonder if you think you're not good enough. You've got this voice of the enemy, the voice of your past, the voice of your, your, all your kind of issues from days gone by that say you're not good enough, that say you're too short to be saved, that you're lacking, that God would never, ever love you. I want you to know that you're not lost to God. God has a box with your name on it. God actually has, I think, a hymn book with your name on it because it says in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, that he sings over you with love. You're not lost. You're never lost to him. Through Jesus, you're saved. Through Jesus, the world is saved. When we get the man together right, the world is right. So never forget what he has done for you on that cross. Never let him go, for he will never let you go. Anne's going to lead us in prayer.